You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What do you think about Constantines? As in, hey, fellow Constantines. Is that too stupid? Is that not, is it not stupid enough? Let's try it out. Hey, fellow Constantines, Mark here. Uh, Before we get started, I wanted to tell you that next week will be the finale of our second season. It's all about one of the most basic questions people have ever asked. You probably asked it yourself when you were a little kid. Where do babies come from? Nowadays, everybody knows the answer, but up until surprisingly recently, no one did. And the story of how we got from clueless to duh is like a big global mystery story full of hard-fought advances and hilarious dead ends. I think you're going to love it. And I want more people to get the chance to love it with you. So my plea to you, loyal Constantines, is that working? Is that growing on you? My request is for you to help spread the word. If you've got iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please go rate and review us. It really helps people discover the show. If you listen on something else like Stitcher or Google Play, you can rate and review us there, too. But the best thing you can do to help us is to tell people about the show. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and share stuff, and retweet, and whatever all that stuff is that I'm really, really bad at. And the next time someone is talking about podcasts they like, or how they're looking for something to listen to, let them know about this weird little show you love. I also want to take a moment to thank Mario, the first person to leave us his story of getting things wrong on our hotline. I'd really like to devote an episode next season to your stories, funny, sad, revelatory, ridiculous, of things you got wrong. So give us a call and leave us a message with your tale. You can leave as much or as little identifying information as you like. The number is 708-761-0493. Again, that's 708-761-0493. Okay. Uh, that should just about do it. Thanks for listening. You're the best. Yes, you. Yeah, I'm talking to you, Brian. All right, on with the show. At first, no one thought to name it at all. When British sailors felt a rocking thud under their ship, they thought they'd hit a sandbar. But there was no sandbar. That was on June 28th, 1831. On July 4th, a sulfurous miasma wafted through the town of Schiaca on the southwest coast of Sicily. It was so thick it made silver throughout the village turn black. Nine days later, July 13th, the people of St. Domenico, not far from Schiaccia, looked out over the open ocean and saw a giant column of smoke rising high up into the sky. The villagers at first thought it might be a steamboat, but as the smoke lingered and darkened, they began to fear that, if it were a steamer, it had caught fire. But there was no steamer. On or about that same day, the Italian brig Gustavo passed through the Strait of Sicily. 
The sailors noticed that the sea was bubbling and roiling around them, and near the epicenter of the boiling waters, a giant black something. The captain of the Gustavo, Francesco Tranfiletti, thought it must be a sea monster or a giant whale. Maybe both, the Leviathan from the Bible. But there was no whale, no sea monster, no Leviathan. Two days after that, July 15th, Captain Giovanni Carrao of the Terracina, a fishing ship, was returning to port at Schiaca when he noticed a peculiar trail, fish, mostly dead fish, but some merely disoriented, floating on the surface of the sea. The Terracina followed the fishy path to a huge plume of smoke rising straight from the ocean. They approached as near as they could in foaming, boiling seas covered in fish and loose, floating black rock. But as they approached, the air filled with hot cinders that threatened to ignite their sails. And so Carrao ordered his ship to abandon the mystery and return to port. When the Terracina reached Skiaka, Captain Carrao told everyone what they'd seen, and the local Department of Sanitation organized a charter. Michelle Florini, the fishing boat captain in charge of that charter, got to the bottom of things. Not a sandbar, not a steamship, not a whale or a sea monster. On July 17th, he plopped his oar down on fresh black earth. A brand new tiny island, just 70 or 80 yards in diameter, born in a flash from an underwater volcano. And that's when things got really weird. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, People This Isle. A little geography before we go any further. The little patch of spongy rock Michel Florini tapped with his oar was located at 37 degrees 10 minutes north, 12 degrees 43 minutes west. These are very important coordinates. Discovering a new island, not just an island that was previously undiscovered, but an island that was previously non-existent, might have been a big deal anyway, because that's not the sort of thing that happens very often. But this island was smack dab between the island of Sicily and the northern tip of Africa, present-day Tunisia, which made it very much more interesting. The Strait of Sicily was arguably the most important water in the world. Controlling maritime traffic through it meant controlling virtually all trade between Europe, Africa, and Asia. Before July of 1831, there was a relative equilibrium between the four great naval powers of the day. First off, there was the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, which was uh, the Bourbon nation of Sicily and Naples that preceded modern Italy. Then you had England, which in 1814 had taken control of the island of Malta, directly below Sicily and about 70 miles southeast of the New Ground. England had taken Malta from France at the end of Napoleon's reign, and France was still pretty miffed about the whole affair. And then, finally, Spain, the greatest naval force in the world. Sicily. England. France. Spain. 
Got it? Great. Back to July 17th. The Skiakans named the new island Corral after our friendly captain who first tried to approach. But that name lasted for barely a long weekend. One day after the Sicilian charter touched its oar, Commander C.H. Swinburne of the HMS Rapid noticed the smoke column and gave a quick but detailed report to his commanding officer. The vice admiral then made for the island in his ship, the HMS Philomel. He didn't land, but upon sighting the new and growing landmass, he gave it its first English name, Hotham Island, after himself, naturally. So, Hotham Island it is. Or was. Two weeks after the Philomel, the HMS St. Vincent showed up on the scene. At this point, the island had grown and solidified considerably. The highest peak rose more than 200 feet out of the ocean, and what had been an 80-yard-long chunk of hot rock now spread out to a circumference of 3.5 miles of black volcanic sand. The captain of the St. Vincent Humphrey Senhouse, who outranked Hotham, by the way, landed on what passed for a beach and actually, literally planted the Union Jack in the ground, officially claiming it for England and renaming it Graham Island after Sir James Graham, Lord of the British Admiralty. Word of England's latest conquest, just 17 miles off Sicily's coast, quickly reached King Ferdinand II in Naples, who issued an official diplomatic congratulations to the British crown that said, Well, what can you do? Finders keepers. I wish you the best of luck with your new island. Or... When word reached King Ferdinand II in Naples, he pitched a furious fit and dispatched the Etna, a 13-gun corvette, to intercept and reclaim the island for Sicily. Which do you think happened? Take a moment to think it over while we listen to the Maltese National Anthem. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Etna reached Graham Island the morning of August 11th, whereupon Carlo Gemolero literally pulled the English flag out of the ground, threw it aside, and shoved the Sicilian one in its place. Gemolero then re-re-re-renamed it Ferdinandia after his king. August 11th. Remember, the first sign of anything at all was a rumbling earthquake in late June. The first sign of land didn't appear until July 17th, so in less than a month, this useless hunk of fiery basalt had been claimed four times. Useless is, I suppose, arguable. Nobody saw it as useless at the time. The English almost immediately had started drawing up plans for a naval base. King Ferdinand, conversely, wanted to build a summer resort for his family. Tourists began to flock to Coriohotham Graham Fernandia. They came to see this most peculiar new land. There was nothing alive on it, of course, but that didn't stop reporters and illustrators from creating fanciful images of full trees and flowers for interested news consumers back on mainland Europe. But there was plenty that was interesting. For one, I mean, here was a new island. I mean, that's pretty amazing in itself. It's not as if new islands pop up every day, and many scientists were drawn to try to figure out how it had happened and what would happen next. Then there was the geography itself. As the island grew to its peak size, it also grew a host of interesting features, including a small mountain, which, granted, erupted lava, smoke, and fire every few hours, but still, and two salty lakes. The larger of the two was about 60 feet across and 10 feet deep, and its waters ran a deep red color. Next door was the smaller pond, which was bright yellow. Supposedly, though I've had trouble confirming the details, while all this exploring was going on, there was still more surreptitious flag wrangling between the English and the Sicilians, and somewhere between late August and early September, the island got two more whispered names, Nerida and Skiaka, after the town, but neither appears to have been widely used. Mostly, the English called it Graham, and the Sicilians called it Fernandia. And then there were the French. Did you forget about the French? It took until September 29th for the French Navy to reach the island, with geologist Constant Prevost leading the way. By that time, dozens, if not hundreds of people had already set foot on the Black Sands, and both the English and Sicilian claims were more than a month old, leaving the French with little legitimate way to bid for their own ownership. But Prevost had a plan. No one had yet ascended to the top of the peak, probably because it was constantly billowing out noxious gas and fire, so in the twisted, flag-based logic of 19th century colonization, Prevost made for the summit, called the island Julia for July, the month of its appearance, and claimed it for France. under the logic that his flag was the highest and therefore most legitimate one. Of course, you know, this means war. The three nations battled it out for ownership through the press and the royal houses, 
All three countries, England, Sicily, and France, sent warships to patrol and guard their claims, and, for months, aimed their guns at one another. Which added another wrinkle. You know how cats come running to the sound of a can being opened? Well, Spain was like that, but with cannons. The Spanish Armada heard about the three-way Cold War going on in the Straits of Sicily and made way as quick as they could to get a piece of the action. The mighty guns of the four greatest navies on Earth were trained on one another, circling the island that each had named and each said was theirs. Envoys were sent from one kingdom to the next, trying to de-escalate the situation, but to little effect. The rock was tiny, lifeless, inhospitable, not much of a prize for anyone. Yet the off chance that a rival might find use of it made it impossible for anyone to back down. By early December, a world war appeared inevitable. Guns were warming up. Diplomatic channels were entirely breaking down. Luckily, so was the island. The underwater volcano had, for months, been spitting out tephra, a loosened ashen rock that the ocean would eat away just a bit slower than it could be deposited. But in September, the volcano settled down, and the tide began to chew up the little island. Faster and faster, the great prize was falling back into the sea. Until finally, on December 17, 1831, Corio Hotham Graham Fernandia Narita Schiaccia Julia sank totally beneath the waves. Let's review. June 28th, earthquakes felt at sea. July 4th, sulfur in Schiaccia. July 13th, the Gustavo spots a boiling sea monster. July 15th, Corral spots the plume. July 17th, the Skiakins name it Corral. July 21st, the English name it Hotham. August 3rd, the English re-rename it Graham. August 11th, the Sicilians re-re-rename it Fernandia. Then, throughout August and September, they fight over it, adding the names Nerida and Schiaccia, until September 29th, when the French give it its penultimate name, Julia. And then by mid-December, the whole thing's gone. It's after the ships clear and shake hands in good game style that the Sicilians bestow the last and final name upon the rock. The island that is no more. All that tumult and saber-rattling for a tiny bit of basalt with a shelf life of five months. Boy, people sure were stupid back then, huh? Glad we're not like that anymore, right? There I go telegraphing the twist again. In 2002, the volcanic system from which the island formed sprung to life again, and seismologists noted that it was back on the rise. A reporter for the UK's Telegram, Adam Lusher, 
decided to go take a look at what he, of course, calls Graham Island. As a sort of lighthearted stunt, he brought a Union Jack, and when he reached the site where the island once stood, it was still 20 feet underwater, he placed a cell phone call to the British Foreign Office, letting them know he was about to reclaim Graham Island for Queen and Country. Just a lark, a little something for the headline, but that is not how the Sicilians who were crewing his boat felt. One of them grabbed the Sicilian naval flag from the stern of the ship, sprinted back to the bow, waved it furiously, screaming, Italia, Italia. Another young Italian looked Lusher straight in the eyes, drew his finger across his neck, and warned in broken English, you write Ferdinandia as British, you die, you die, mafia, mafia. Lusher, realizing his hilarious joke had somehow lost something in the translation, gave up his claim. But the rumbling had begun, not just of the volcano, but of the old near war. Articles ran in Malta, now an independent territory, asking whether they should have a claim on Graham. The Sicilians were on edge. In November, the mayor of Schiaca asked the living descendants of Ferdinand to come and take part in a ceremony to permanently and preemptively claim their chunk of earth. Prince Carlo and Countess Camilla joined the people of Schiaca in the lowering of a giant plaque onto the top of the submarine peak. On it is inscribed the Sicilian flag and a message reading, This piece of land, once Ferdinandia, belonged and shall always belong to the Sicilian people. In 2006, a French PhD student announced a proposal, with a Kickstarter because in 2006, to resume the French claim on Julia. When the foreign office of the British government was finally reached, their representative tried to allay concerns. They said not to worry, it was no big deal. They even made a joke of their own to cut the tension. They said the UK had no intention of, quote, making waves about it. Hardy har. But when pressed on whether that meant England was refusing a claim on the island, should it reappear, they quickly sobered up. We, we would look at this if and when any island were to emerge. Six months after Sicily laid the plaque, it was found broken into 12 pieces. No one has ever found the vandal, or spy, who did it. Some of the Skiakins suspect MI6. The fight's not over. It's just a bit waterlogged. From the third coast, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. Because you got to think that there are at least three or four, at least three or four Brian's listening who are like, wait, what did he say? I'm really just in this whole thing for screwing with the Brian's. 